Contracts, salary caps. Why do our favorite teams make some of the moves they do? It's usually the money. It's time for the Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. Welcome to a special edition of the Business of Sports with Andrew Brent. We're going to take a deep dive into the case of Christie v. NCAA. It's the sports gambling case. It's on deck for the Supreme Court on Monday, December 4th. Supreme Court of the United States, that's right, it's happening. We'll have two experts with me, gambling expert for ESPN and associate professor that knows all the ins and outs of this, coming up on the Business of Sports podcast. But first, a word from HP. Did you know it's time to upgrade your old and aging tech the best ways with HP? HP PCs provide the best about IT security. You're one step ahead of the hackers, the thieves, the unauthorized users. They're designed to safeguard devices, data, and identity. They have the world's most secure and manageable PCs and printers, a dedicated sales team, three-year standard warranty on select PCs, and excellent pricing with free shipping and returns every day. So right now, my listeners can go to www.hp.com slash sports, enter my code SPORTS, all caps, S-P-O-R-T-S, and save 35% on select HP business products with Intel Core processors. You also get a three-year standard warranty on select PCs and free shipping store-wide. Again, go to hp.com slash sports, enter my code SPORTS, all caps, at checkout and save 35% on select business PCs. See website for complete details. We've got business and legal issues to talk about in the world of gambling this week. It is a seminal week in the area of sports law. I can count on one hand probably the number of cases that make it to the United States Supreme Court involving sports, and we have one. Coming Monday, oral arguments will proceed in Christie v. NCAA, which is known far and wide as the sports betting case for New Jersey, trying to legalize sports gambling. Arguments will happen this week, Monday, December 4th. Decision not expected till the spring. I wanted to talk about it since it's such a key moment. I'll talk about my experiences in gambling, but I wanted to bring on two experts with me. Ryan Rodenberg, associate professor, Florida State University, has written, talked, and been an expert on this subject of sports betting for some time, and gambling guru at ESPN, Dave Purdom is with me as well. Guys, welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Andrew. Glad to be here. Yeah, really, really happy to have you so we can dive into this. First, Ryan, I sort of set the stage in a very uh, preliminary way about what's ahead on Monday with this case, Christie v. NCA and the leagues fighting legalized betting in, in New Jersey. If you could sort of set the scene a little deeper in terms of where it's been, where it's coming, and what, what you expect on Monday. Well, after five long years, the day is finally here. And as you said in your intro, certainly we can all count on, on one hand the number of sports law cases that, that work their way through the legal pipeline and eventually make their way to the the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, when the sports league, so you mentioned the NCAA, it's also the other plaintiffs who initiated this case is the NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball, and NHL. So the five of these plaintiffs all got together. They sued Governor Christie and a few other state officials for the first time back in August of 2012. So a little over five years ago is when the case uh, first got started. 
And that was the case when New Jersey had enacted a law to legalize and regulate sports betting in much the same way that you would kind of have the look and feel if you were to go to Las Vegas. So there would be regulated sports books that would get licenses and they would offer uh, bets on a variety of different sports and it would be it would be a regulated environment. That case uh, ended in 2014 with the leagues winning. And the reason they won is because back in 1992, Congress passed the Professional and Amateur Sports Protection Act, frequently referred to as PASPA. And when they passed that statute back 25 years ago, Congress said, let's try to freeze in place the amount of sports betting that's currently going on to Nevada, Delaware, Montana, Oregon, a few other states that had uh, kind of some, some small, very unique types of sports betting. Nevada was the only fully-fledged, mature market out there, uh, but that did exclude New Jersey. So when New Jersey voters went to the polls in, in 2011, they did vote overwhelmingly to change state law so they could facilitate sports betting. But the roadblock that New Jersey ran into was this first lawsuit a little over five years ago in 2012. So that, that lawsuit is now over. That's not, Andrew, the current case that's before the Supreme Court. So what, what New Jersey did after losing that, that first stage in the lawsuit is they went back to the drawing board and said, okay, well, if we can't have Nevada-style regulated sports betting, then we'll simply just take some of our laws off the books. It's called a partial repeal take some of their laws off the books and, and allow sports betting in a, uh, a largely unreg- unregulated uh, sphere in terms of government oversight. Now, certainly casinos or sports books that were to, to choose to offer sports betting, that'd be far different than a grocery store, a sports bar, or a barbershop offering sports betting. That would still not be allowed under the, the, the current partial repeal that New Jersey effectuated. So that's the case that's currently... Uh, pending before the U.S. Supreme Court, whether Congress can pass a law that says a state can't repeal its own laws. That's the the, the gist of the the underlying legal issues that will be before the court. So certainly there's a lot of esoteric legalese that has went into it, but at its core is whether Congress at a federal level can tell individual states to what extent they have to keep their anti-sports betting laws on the books. So this is a big issue for New Jersey. Uh, There's about a half dozen other states that are currently considering sports betting that are kind of have these placeholder laws uh, in going through the pipeline and the legislatures to be able to move quickly. But for other states that aren't interested in sports gambling, the case won't have a lot of impact. I don't think that the attorney general in Utah, for example, is closely monitoring this case. Right. And I can speak there with firsthand experience as to the reason you mentioned the sports leagues. We'll keep the NCAA out of it for a second. Why the sports leagues are fighting this so hard comes down to that word integrity, which we hear about all the time. And going back to Pete Tim Donahue, all these cases, of course, integrity is used as they want it to be used. Uh, I've seen sort of these evolved attitudes and maybe even mixed messages from the leagues, which some people would call Chris Christie would hypocrisy. Uh, we'll get into that a little more, but Dave, your thoughts as we sit here today about to hear this case from the Supreme court about how vigilant the leagues are opposing this and what they really want out of this. Well, they've remained in the case. We have seen other leagues 
um, go change their position. Most notably, the NBA has completely pivoted on this. They now believe a fully regulated from the federal level uh, sports betting uh, market would better protect the integrity of the game. And I've always thought that that is the obvious. That makes sense that if you have a regulated market overseen by vetted and licensed officials, well, of course, that would better protect the game, integrity of the game. Uh, than the current environment. And I think it's important to note what the current environment is. Um, if you want to place a bet on sports and you're outside of Nevada, you can do right there on your phone. You can either uh, sign up for an account at an offshore commercial sports books. There's over a hundred of those serving the U S or what a lot of people do is get a local bookmaker and the local bookmakers have also gravitated online. Um, you can set up a credit account basically with them where you can place uh, bets up and down to your up $1,000 or down $1,000, and then you have to pay out. So a lot of people play that way. So the Professional and Sports and Amateur Protection Act has not done anything to curb betting. In fact, a lot of people think it's actually increased the amount of betting that goes on. So for the leagues to, to throw out the integrity argument, it's hard for me to buy because, again, obviously a licensed regulated market would better protect the integrity of the game. And we have a seminal moment uh, before now, which was, I believe this, this time of year in 2014, where you mentioned Dave, the NBA commissioner, Adam Silver, writing an op-ed in the New York times, basically advocating for legalized gambling and saying, let's bring it out in the light. Let's take it out of the darkness, all the illegal gambling going on. Ryan, when you saw that, I guess your thoughts then and now, how the NBA, and we'll get to other leagues, justified that position while strongly opposing New Jersey in this case? It's certainly a topic that I've given a lot of thought to. Certainly, I I remember reading that. It came out in mid-November when NBA Commissioner Adam Silver wrote the New York Times op-ed advocating for exactly what you described. Now, one month earlier is the date when the five sports leagues filed their second lawsuit against Governor Christie. So within the course of 30 days, they filed a second lawsuit against Governor Christie, and then, and then one of the five proceeded to write the, the influential New York Times op-ed. So there's a number of points that he makes in, in his New York Times piece. It was expertly written. It certainly touched upon a lot of the integrity-relevant type of considerations that any type of of regulated mature market would look for. Now, three years have passed since then. The case is still going on. The NBA is still a plaintiff in the case. And my sense is their rationale for staying in the case as opposing to withdrawing from the case and lobbying Congress directly and actively uh, for the past couple of years. In their minds, they would certainly prefer, it seems, based on their recent statements as well as the, the New York Times op-ed, some sort of one-size-fits-all federal type of framework for sports betting that would allow individual states and or individual sports leagues to opt into. And that avoids the, the scenario where there's kind of a patchwork of different laws across the country and two, two examples, certainly that your listeners, it'll resonate with your listeners. One is the whole regulation of sports agents. That's on a state-by-state -state basis. Finally, Congress stepped in with, with a statute years later. And then, of course, the daily fantasy industry. There's a number of states that, that have tried to enact laws. There's a number of states that actually have enacted laws. I think we're up to 
to 18 right now, but that's somewhat of a patchwork. All of them have different regulatory and, and licensing uh, type of requirements. Uh, so certainly there is some attractiveness to uh, sports leagues that have kind of gotten over their visual response to sports betting to having a one-size-fits-all approach just because of the uniformity, uh, trying to, to comply or to, to be a stakeholder in a, a number of different jurisdictions across the country. I think they view it as kind of tough, but you know, certainly within the, the daily fantasy industry and the sports agent industry, those are creatures primarily of state law. Uh, this, that's not what the NBA is advocating now, though. So in, in basic terms, we're lo- and I'll, let, I'll start with Dave and back to Ryan, the NBA is opposing the New Jersey uh, proposed legislation because they want a federal solution. And what scares them about the state-by-state state is what, Dave? I think the inconsistencies of the laws, uh, Ryan made a good point about the daily fantasy. Um, there are some states that you can be 18 and play daily fantasy. Now there's other states that you have to be 21. I believe Massachusetts is a 21 state. So just those kind of things that would make it more difficult. But bottom line, I think they believe federal regulation or a federal framework here will give them the best opportunity to possibly get a cut out of this. Uh, you know, a financial, these billion-dollar industry leagues, they are in the business of making money, and they want to figure out how to make money off regulated legal sports betting, and I believe they think that a federal framework uh, best gives them opportunity to do that. Yeah, and Ryan, you mentioned fantasy, and I wanted to go there for a minute. Obviously, before we – I mean, there is the the precedent of the state-by-state and all the different litigation that led to legislation around the country on fantasy. But I think a bigger issue on fantasy, of course, is, is that gambling or not? Because all the leagues that are opposing this have embraced fantasy. It's a great fan engagement tool. Uh, I guess, go ahead, Brian. You know, absolutely. The, the customer engagement and the attachment that fans will have to discrete moments and performances in games is certainly different than kind of the aggregate team level stuff that was historically something that was always the, the biggest part of, of sports betting. But even a broader point, and, and, and Dave touched on this, the passage of time has a huge role in all of this. When PASPA was passed by Congress back in 1992, there was no such thing on a widely available basis uh, of this thing called the Internet. <laughs> and that has just wildly changed sports betting in terms of the access via a laptop and the current access via your mobile phone. There's a, a, a great you know, test tube experiment going on in, in Nevada right now where, where literally all you need is an app on your phone and you make deposits ahead of time and you, you don't even physically need to be in the sports book. And they have very robust... Uh, geographical trackers where the app doesn't work as soon as you cross the state line. All of those types mm-hmm. of things were, were aspects that neither sports leagues nor Congress could even contemplate back in 1992. Uh, so in terms of updating the federal law, that certainly is a, is a big, big aspect. But the, the whole daily fantasy uh, news for the last uh, several years all of that will come back into the fray when, when, when this traditional type of sports betting comes into uh, the Congress's uh, uh, purview as well as just kind of hitting the news cycle. But in terms of the amount of 
time and money that, that betters and, and sports fans uh, spend in terms of expenditures on sports, it's a huge issue. And certainly the leagues, I think, recognize that. It certainly hasn't been a part that they've publicized uh, much at all, in the at least in the in the recent past. But it's something they'll certainly look to uh, moving forward as, as we continue to kind of get the weekly updates in terms of lower TV ratings uh, and whatnot, because those sort of things translate into lower fees in terms of broadcasting agreements with the league. So it, it's all tied in together. Yeah, and, and for those who don't know, quick? yeah, of course, Dave, sure. We mentioned that, you know, is daily fantasy gambling? What if yeah. sports betting isn't gambling? What if it is a game of skill like the daily fantasy lobbies have pushed their game to get acceptance? Uh, Ryan will note also that all five of the major sports leagues that are involved in plaintiffs are on the record in court documents saying that traditional sports betting is a game of skill. So maybe instead of looking at daily fantasy, is it gambling? Maybe sports betting isn't gambling. Maybe it is also a game of skill, and maybe that's how this moves forward. Well, that brings up the question of the leagues fighting this so hard for all these years, and this kind of reverse psychology is do they want to win or do they want to lose? (laughs) Because if they lose, I understand they're fighting state by state in the mishmash around the country, but if they lose, then they have the revenue opportunities going forward with gambling that we are now talking about. Uh, If they win, I guess they hope for a federal framework. Is that a fair way to look at it, Ryan? So that exact that exact question I certainly mold over for quite some time in terms of what happens in terms of that uh, fork in the road, whether they win or lose. I think regardless of whether they win or lose, certainly one aspect that they have won on is over the course of the five years of this litigation, it has certainly bought the sports leagues a lot of time to research this issue, to develop strong positions on the issue and kind of ramp up and, and do their, I mean, build a foundation for what it, however they want to see this federal framework or state level type of legislation take place. So from that perspective, uh, that's, that would certainly be advantageous to them. If they were to lose the case, I, I certainly think it would be more motivation and probably more attention on the issue it would garner Congress to at least hold some hearings on it. Because if the leagues simply win the case, as they've done over the course of the last five years, New Jersey has yet to win a, a, a substantive decision from any level of the court system. If they win, essentially that's just the status quo. So whether the status quo uh, continues for one year or five years, it would continue the, the path that they've currently been on, but that certainly wouldn't bar them from actively lobbying Congress to to pursue something in terms of amending or replacing past this federal law. Uh, publicly, the NBA said they'll they're, they're going to do that whether they win or lose. Other leagues haven't publicly stated that they'll do that, uh, but I'm sure they kind of have all their ducks in a row to be prepared to do that if they have uh, decided to go that route. And that is certainly one interesting aspect of, of this case. There's five plaintiffs, and if you kind of look at them, the five sports leagues along a the spectrum, they're not totally all on the same page in terms of how they view sports betting, at least publicly, in terms of what they're saying. I mean, the NBA is on right. one end of the spectrum, and the, the NCAA is on the far other end of the spectrum. The other three are somewhere along there. I certainly think it's fair to say Major League Baseball is closer to taking the NBA's position. 
Uh, and then, of course, the NHL and the, and the NFL, they both moved franchises to Las Vegas. So certainly any, any type of, of taint or stain that they may feel for sports gambling, that argument appears to be out the window now. I just don't see how plausibly you could make that argument that a geographical proximity to sports betting uh, can somehow injure these leagues. But remember, that's the exact argument they made when they started this lawsuit back in 2012. I mean, that, that was in the court documents, how they, they alleged that they would be injured given the, the proximity of large amounts of population on the East Coast and around New Jersey. So I think that argument is probably gone. Uh, but that certainly the, the fact that they're not all uh, on the same page will certainly be uh, eventful and keep all of us on our toes moving forward. Dave, we've talked about this. We have two franchises now in Las Vegas as you know the gambling mecca of the country and the two leagues that, as Ryan said, seem to be most opposed to legalized gambling. And the, the, one of the most curious comments you and I have both remarked in recent years has been, upon relocation of the Raiders to Vegas, Roger Goodell praised the regulations in Nevada that he's fighting in New Jersey. So where is all this going from your perspective? I mean, Vegas is on its way. Do they just think this will all be worked out by the time they open the stadium in, in Las Vegas? Your guess is as good as mine on that. It's been very difficult to uh, reconcile the NFL's position. Uh, how can you say, look, the uh, regulatory body of sports betting that oversees sports betting in Nevada is beneficial for us to move the Raiders here? Well, wouldn't that be the same case with the New York Jets and uh, play uh, right. in the Meadowlands or, or, or wherever? However, they don't seem to agree with that, as they've said in uh, the deposition testimony, how it would irreparably harm uh, the perception of the integrity of the game for gambling to expand. But uh, that sticks the head in the sand regarding that gambling has already happened on the games. Why don't we want it regulated? Um, you and I were at a conference last week with uh, Ted Leonsis uh, in D.C., the Washington Capitals and Wizards owner, who said, what are we afraid of here? Why do we not want to do this? And I can't really answer that from the NFL's perspective. Yeah, it's really interesting uh, and because we've been on panels and, and panels have featured people from the NBA. And I guess the question I want to ask kind of a philosophical question, Ryan, sort of take off your love, your professor hat. Do you think gambling has detrimental uh, potential in a, in a society? Uh, in an in a, in a abstract the philosophical sense, certainly you can point to detrimental aspects uh, that gambling might have in terms of addiction. That's certainly one that I would point to uh, quite right. clearly. Uh, Nevada as a regulatory body uh, attempts to address this in a number of ways in terms of self, self-exclusion self lists as well as uh, counseling and assistance. But when, when you look at the, in terms of comparing sports betting specifically to other types of gambling, whether it's, whether it's slot machines or table games or, or poker or whatnot, the majority of studies place sports betting at a fairly low rate relative to those other types of activities. Now, certainly that doesn't mean that it's, it's not an issue. It's just uh, less of a one compared to the other types of, of sports betting activities in terms of most of the, the studies that I've, that I've seen. Intuitively, that kind of makes sense because sports betting is more of an active type of 
of, of conduct as opposed to something passive where you're just pulling a one-armed bandit or pushing buttons on a, on a video poker right. machine, so to speak. Uh, but that's one aspect in terms of a kind of a general detrimental effect on on society or individual people uh, that that one can point to. But here's another one: in a regulated environment, if you go to Nevada, for example, and want to play sports bets, I can't go to the ticket counter and just say, "Well, I'd like to bet these three games, and I'll pay you back later." They don't accept right. credit. Okay, you I mean you you have to actually have the money to make that wager. Uh, in certain illegal markets or gray markets, they do work off of credit. And anytime you have a, a credit relationship like that, uh, that's in, in terms of digging yourself a hole or whatnot, I would think that would be much more susceptible to, to an individual uh, monetary problems or bankruptcies or whatnot uh, that, that other people point to in terms of detrimental aspects of, of, of gambling generally as well as sports betting. Dave? Do you worry about uh, addiction and detrimental aspects? I mean, I'm sure beyond the legal discussion of gambling, is this something that we should worry about? If we allow sports betting, it could realize some ne- negative benefits to this. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I think Australia uh, is the best example of this. They legalized sports betting right around the 2000. Um, they saw a spike in addiction, people coming to them, uh, having issues with sports betting. Uh, we saw over there the advertisements uh, from the bookmakers just kind of engulfed uh, sporting events over there. One of the biggest bookmakers uh, in Australia ended up in one of the broadcast booths. Um, so it really kind of overtook it and led to some negative results. So that's definitely something we should be concerned about. However, I talked to an Australian doctor over there who deals with gambling addiction. And she said that she still believes that legalized, regulated uh, is a net win in terms of addiction. The other thing I worry about is the conspiracy theorists out there. We've seen Mm -hmm. a massive, massive increase uh, of those, the volume of social media that we've had in the current political environment. And I I do get concerned because any time a controversial play happens that impacts the point spread, uh, my mm. social media lights up and people are like, see, it's fixed, it's fixed, it's fixed. That People believe that uh, somehow these leagues are fixing them. And, of course, I completely do not see that at all. We've uh, How many former players, former league officials, uh, former referees have there been? And none of them have ever come out and said, hey, this was not great. This was, this was, uh, this was messed up. They're, they're trying to manipulate results. I just don't see it. But – from the league's perspective, I think they are concerned about that. They have often mentioned the perception of the integrity of the games, that they don't want people thinking their games aren't on the level. And I think that is a concern. And I I just hope that people can, uh, uh, we as media can educate people enough to realize that we're actually, by legalizing sports betting, helping protect the integrity of the game and hope that perception uh, is better received. But I do worry about that because – uh, it is not at this time. It's going to be interesting to see what happens. I mean, I think the bigger issue is can we control it? We uh, we mentioned that conference Dave and I were at last week. That was sponsored by Sport Radar, a gambling integrity company, and that's a company we have invested in. So I think the integrity angle is something they can maybe control, but again, perception is going to be an issue, as Dave talked about. 
I want to get to the case, Ryan. Uh, before you, I ask for you sort of predictions, which are obviously impossible with the Supreme Court, but the, the, the possibilities, and, and let me know if I see this correctly, they could strike down PASPA and then it's a free-for-all. They could make it New Jersey-specific. They could leave things alone, which seems to be remote since they took the case for a reason. Uh, or they could rule for the leagues. So am I missing something in terms of potential outcomes? I know there is sort of the nuclear option. They could also make Nevada illegal to keep the states on a a similar plane, but I would think that would be extremely unlikely as well. That is a remote possibility, but no, your your rundown of the kind of the, the endpoints in terms of how this uh, decision could come about is certainly accurate. So New Jersey uh, originally put forth three different legal arguments, one based on this theory of legal standing that the sports leagues themselves aren't injured by sports gambling and therefore shouldn't be able to get a foothold in, in, a, in a federal courthouse to file the lawsuit in the first place. Second, they had that equal sovereignty argument about, hey, wait a minute, why can Congress treat Nevada differently than New Jersey? And that's the argument that they've now abandoned. And I think the reason they've abandoned that is because taking it taken to its logical end is the nuclear option that you mentioned. Well, if, if the Supreme Court bought that argument and said, yes, Congress shouldn't be able to treat states differently, the remedy for that, Andrew, wouldn't be to strike down PASPA in total, the remedy would just be to take out the weird grandfathering clause that PASPA has to exempt Nevada and a few other states. That would still be a loser for New Jersey because they still wouldn't allow it uh, have sports gambling. The third argument that they're hanging their hat on now is, is this anti-commandeering that Congress should not have the, the right under the Constitution to be able to command states to do certain things or not do certain things. So that's the argument that they're putting forth now as the, as the petitioners in the case who are uh, trying to get the Supreme Court to review the case, which they were successful on doing. So for New Jersey to win the case, it could take one of two forms. The first one is the Supreme Court just wipes out past it entirely, takes it off the books, says the whole thing is unconstitutional. That would certainly be a big win for New Jersey. New Jersey would probably have kind of a first-mover advantage in terms of offering sports betting on the East Coast. But it would be fairly short-lived. Pennsylvania, probably Delaware, certainly New York, all of those states would move pretty quickly in the absence of this federal law to offer some level of sports betting. It might be slightly different than New Jersey's, but it would certainly be out there. The other more narrow way that the Supreme Court could decide this case is to say, Well, what New Jersey did here in terms of their partial repeal of their prohibitions on sports gambling is technically allowed, but beyond that, PASPA, the federal law, is still on the books, and that would Mm -hmm. would cause other states to to pause and say, well, wait a minute, do we really want to repeal our own laws? Because that's certainly a, a different way of doing things compared to what Nevada has very successfully done of having affirmative regulation. Other states might just be shy and and not want to take that route. So that's a possibility, too. And then, of course, on the flip side, if the the Supreme Court were to find that that when Congress passed this law, uh, they were under their their, uh, congressional and constitutional powers to do so, that would be a status quo moment, and it would be still on the books. 
and whether the NBA and other sports leagues would then move quickly to, to lobby Congress or state lawmakers, for that matter, to, to lobby Congress to try to get something done at the federal level. That's anyone's guess, but certainly that would uh, keep Nevada's uh, so-called monopoly kind of on the books, at least for a little while longer. Uh, other states would have to, 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 to slow down in terms of the movement they've had towards sports betting, uh, but it certainly wouldn't bar any other state from saying, well, if we're going to pass a daily fantasy law, let's try to, to pass a, a sports betting law, too. Because remember, this this federal law that's on the books, it's something that doesn't even result in a crime. I mean, nobody can go to prison for violating the statute. The only thing that can happen is that a court, a judge, can issue an injunction telling you not to do it. So that might not be an impediment for, for some aggressive state to pursue. I guess only time will tell if that, if that ends up happening. Ryan, I'm going to ask you to handicap it. So there's nine justices. It's generally considered that on states' rights issues, there five out of nine generally uh, uh, turn towards the conservative side, which is favorable to state rights. But here's the kind of the weird part of this case. Conservatives generally oppose gambling. So that's a unique aspect of, of this case. And then the four uh, Supreme Court justices who generally turn, uh, tend to be more liberal, which would be deferential to congressional power, one of them, Andrew, actually mentioned PASPA, the sports betting law, in a very influential case four years ago. So Justice Ginsburg, uh, who was mm. nominated to the, to the bench by, by, by President Clinton back in 1994, she wrote a very influential dissent in a prior case and actually flagged PASPA as being constitutionally questionable. So that was an interesting observation for, for, for her to take, because it wasn't a, the, the, the case that she wrote about wasn't a sports betting case, of course. This was, is obviously the first sports betting case the Supreme Court has ever taken. But she went out of right. her way to cast, doubt, to, to cast doubt on kind of the continuing viability of, of this sports betting law. So it's an issue that could attract... A, a majority of the justices, if the decision is narrow enough, I, I simply do not see four out of nine of them signing on to any type of decision that would allow kind of a sweeping states' rights type of, of, of judgment. So that leaves five of them that could sign on, on for it. But if the, if, the, if the court takes a narrow approach, they could arguably get all nine, if not uh, five, six, seven, or eight. So uh, things are lining up for, for New Jersey, and, and that, that shouldn't be a particular surprise. The re, the, in general, the reversal rate at the Supreme Court level, once they take a case, is right around 75%. So whenever they take a case, three out of four times, they end up overruling the lower court judge uh, judges. Yeah. So uh, whether it's narrow or broad, New Jersey has to, has to be feeling probably pretty good about their chances for a win it's just undetermined yet, and we'll probably know more after Monday to kind of see uh, how open the justices are during this oral argument to New Jersey's New Jersey's claim and, and how the leagues are trying to refute it uh, in terms of kind of the, the the tone and the content of their questions. But if it's a if it's a very very narrow decision, uh, it could garner the support of more than just the conservatives. It could garner the support of some of the liberals too. So uh, New Jersey's probably feeling pretty good about their chances at this point. Well, uh, to follow up that, they have to be feeling good about their chances that they took the case. I mean, again, 
for people who don't know, the United States Attorney Solicitor General, excuse me, recommended against the court taking this case. And you can tell me the odds of courts taking cases uh, uh, generally. So there has to be a reason, right, Brian? There has to be. So they keyed in on some issue. We just don't know what it is yet. Uh, but we'll know. We'll, we'll know. Yeah, we'll, we'll know soon enough. But of the eight to nine thousand petitions that are called that, that uh, get sent to the Supreme Court every year, the court only takes about one percent. About eighty to ninety every year uh, are the cases they actively decide, and this is one of them. And then even on top of that, uh, the President Trump's Supreme Court lawyers—they're in this office of Solicitor General—they recommended to the Supreme Court that the Supreme Court not take the case. And the Supreme Court took the case anyway. So both of those data points, the fact that they accepted it just in general, plus the fact that they they ignored the executive branch's own lawyer's recommendation, uh, both of those point to some sort of decision on the merits that would be favorable to the, to the type of argument that New Jersey's putting forth here. Last question for Dave. There's, despite what happens in court or does not happen or does happen or states' rights or leagues win, there is real sense of inevitability about all this, isn't there, about legalized sports betting in this country? Absolutely. Um, I think you can see that by the number of states that signed on in support uh, of New Jersey, which I believe was up to 20. Um, Brian mentioned the states that have already passed laws that if PASPA is lifted, they are ready to go with legalizing sports betting. Um, and even further, the Borgata Casino in, in New Jersey is already planning a sports book. So is Monmouth Park Racetrack in New Jersey. They already have a mm-hmm. sports bar that they plan to convert uh, to a sports book within weeks after a positive decision. Uh, Mississippi, same thing. They've got casinos down there. They've already passed a law uh, that will, if PASPA is lifted, uh, they will offer sports betting. So I just feel like we have gone past the tipping point. Uh, this is inevitable, whether it happens uh, directly after the Supreme Court ruling or not. Um, two, three years max, I think we will see expanded legal sports betting outside of Nevada. Get your popcorn ready, legal version. <laughs> it's going to be Paul Clement arguing for the leagues. He has always uh, been involved in some big NFL cases that I've seen, concussion case, lockout case. And Ted Olson for New Jersey, who argued against Clement in that lockout case I just referred to. So All-Star Lawyers, big event, Washington, D.C. on Monday, December 4th. For those interested, on Friday, December 1st, I'll be at a media briefing at the National Press Club talking about this in front of the media. And of course, uh, we'll continue to talk about it here on the Business of Sports podcast. Ryan Rodenberg, Associate Professor, Florida State. Dave Purdom, gambling writer for ESPN.com. Really a pleasure to have your both and uh, to really take a deep dive into this case. Thanks so much. Hope you enjoyed that deep dive into gambling and sports and the big case coming up in the United States Supreme Court on Monday, December 4th. will be an interesting watch and we will keep you abreast every step of the way. Thanks for listening. You can follow me on Twitter at Andrew Brandt. Listen to the podcast at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, RossTucker.com, wherever you hear your podcast. Please give me a good rating if you would. And I'll be back next week with another edition of the Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. 
Thanks for listening to the Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. You can also get additional insider insight by listening to the Ross Tucker Football Podcast, Fantasy Feast, Even Money, and College Draft Podcast, all at RossTucker.com or wherever podcasts are found.